This is Stacey Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news, coming to you live from our homes and via the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. A Waukesha County judge ruled against absentee ballot drop boxes today. The Associated Press reports that the ruling, which is almost certain to be appealed by the Wisconsin Supreme Court, is part of a Republican push to rein in measures put in place by local election clerks during the pandemic. The lawsuit was bought by the Wisconsin Institute of Law and Liberty, a conservative accuracy firm. The ruling, as it stands now, bans absentee ballot boxes from being located anywhere other than clerks' offices. Madison installed more than a dozen of these boxes around the city ahead of the 2020 presidential election. The man who's chosen to be Madison's first independent police monitor, but who declined the job, says that he backed out because documents surfaced about a former job, recording according to the Wisconsin State Journal. Brian Bishop, the current manager of the Equal Opportunities Division in the city's Department of Civil Rights, was offered the position last year, but declined in the beginning of January. And according to records from the state's Equal Rights Division, Bishop had harassed and discriminated against a woman who worked for his former security company, APA of Madison, back in the late 1990s and early 2000s. In 2006, Bishop was forced to pay the woman $146,000 after the Department of Workforce Development concluded that the woman was fired due to her gender. The Equal Rights Division also found that Bishop had violated state law by employing security guards who did not have the correct permits and for writing bad checks. Bishop did not respond to the State Journal's request for comment. A protest was held today by Safe Skies Clean Water Wisconsin to object to F-35s coming to Madison. The group, along with Madison Alder Brian Benford and Dane County Supervisor Heidi Wegleitner, hung banners from the Dane County Airport sign that read, quote, why not clean up PFAS toxins at Truex? They call on Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes Conway, County Executive Joe Parisi, Governor Tony Evers, and DNR Secretary Preston Cole to halt construction at Truex Field and for the National Guard to clean up PFAS contamination at the site. Safe Skies Clean Wisconsin currently has two open legal actions against the National Guard in regards to PFAS contamination at Truex Field. And finally, if you had plans to go ice skating this evening, then you may be out of luck. The city announced today that most ice rinks and lagoons around the city had been closed due to the warm weather and standing water in the rinks. But the city plans to reopen the rinks on Friday afternoon. The WORT local news show will be preempted on Monday. We'll be airing the annual Madison-Dane County Martin Luther King Jr. observance at 6 p.m. Featuring the MLK Community mm-hmm. Choir, led by musician Leotha Stanley and keynote speaker Ilyasa Shabazz, daughter of Malcolm X and award-winning author, educator, and producer. The event will also feature the presentation of City County Humani- Humanitarian Awards. This year's recipients are Will Green, founder of Mentoring Positives, Vanessa McDowell, CEO of the YWCA Madison, and Michael Johnson president and CEO of the Boys and Girls Club of Dane County. And now on to today's top stories. As the Omicron variant continues to fuel a wave of COVID-19 across the state, officials have announced several measures to address things in short supply, namely extra tests 
and hospital staffing. WORT reporter Heron Splinter has the details. Omicron has spread widely across Wisconsin. In the last week of 2021, the Wisconsin State Laboratory of Hygiene at UW-Madison reported that 82% of their sequenced tests were of the Omicron variant. The variant has put a large burden on the hospital system. 95% of ICU and intermediate care beds are currently in use. According to a dashboard from the Wisconsin Hospital Association, 2,219 people across the state are hospitalized with COVID-19. Here's Department of Health Services Secretary-designee Karen Timberlake speaking at a press conference today. Wisconsinites experiencing medical emergencies may not be able to receive immediate life-saving attention and care. We have heard healthcare providers in Wisconsin and around the country sounding this alarm, and we need to hear them. As hospitals swell, they're also struggling to find staffing. Timberlake says that the true issues of treating COVID patients stem from a lack of personnel. What we're finding is that the capacity that we need to build in our healthcare settings is human capacity. It is not the, the brick and mortar sort of physical structure, infrastructure. What we need is people to do the work. This week, 50 National Guard members were sent to nursing homes across Wisconsin in an effort to relieve pressure on hospital staffing. Over the next two months, an additional 160 National Guard members will get trained to become Certified Nursing Assistants, or CNAs. They'll be sent to long-term care facilities across the state in order to free up space in hospitals. 80 National Guard members will undergo training through January and deploy at the end of the month, and another 80 are set to deploy at the end of February. Members will get about 16 hours of minimum training, not enough to become full CNA, but with an option to pursue further training for accreditation. The state health department encourages people to get tested for COVID-19 if you have symptoms or you learn that you have been in close contact with someone who has COVID-19. But not all tests are made equally. Dr. Ryan Westergaard, Wisconsin's chief medical officer, says at-home test results should not be the sole decider in returning to work or school, instead recommending tests under supervision such as community testing sites. The role of at-home tests, um, and this was articulated in some guidance from CDC a few weeks ago, and it's been our consistent message as well, is that they can provide information for individuals who want a rapid result of whether they have COVID and maybe an option that they consider before gathering in groups, for example. But when it comes to decisions about returning to work and returning to school, for example, our recommendation is to not use at-home tests, but use ones that are done in a supervised setting where we can be confident that the proper steps were, were, were followed and the interpretation is, is correct. Beginning this Saturday, all health insurers in Wisconsin will be required to cover the cost of at-home COVID-19 tests after federal requirements from the Biden administration take effect. Yesterday, the state reported over 13,000 new confirmed cases of COVID-19, bringing the seven-day rolling average to 9,915 cases of COVID per day. In Dane County, 9,220 people got tested yesterday, and the current test positivity rate is 21.6%. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Heron Splinter. Last week, Madison artist Phil Porter passed away at the age of 75. Porter was well known throughout the community for his positive energy and paintings of Madison landmarks, which were found in art galleries across the city. Back in 2013, 
Porter was interviewed by Helena White for WORT. This is an excerpt from their interview. I didn't start doing art till I was a young adult, and I was already at Orchard Hill. Otherwise, I've done different kinds of art, like weaving and um, pottery and ceramic and woodworking. Decoupage, Mod Podge. I don't know, Patty Wyshynski got me started in 78 painting. She used to be my mentor when I was living at Orchard Hill. She was a real nice person. What's Orchard Hill? It's not around anymore. It's It failed in 92 or 93. It was a residential center for people with disabilities. And was that a nice place to stay? In the beginning, it was. They tried to make it into an institution, and I'm kind of glad to be out of there. And I was competing with another guy when I was at Orchard Hill, People said I shouldn't have been competing with him. But on the other hand, I I finally decided there was room for more than one artist. So the, he was more like a, a pen and ink artist. I, I finally decided to, to, to paint. It's not worth talking about, my child. It is I was in an institution. I was put in an institution. 14 and a half years, and it's not worth talking about. I I don't like to go back that far. I was treated really badly as a kid. I wasn't treated that great. So, you know, I, I, I just, there's not, there's a lot of things I don't like to talk about. Institutions are for criminals, not for people with disabilities. I, I was living on division before that. I lived on on Upham. And I lived on commercial for a year, which was a lousy place. I I did live with Pat Knick. I lived with Leif and with Bills. And before that, I lived with Sean. Nobody, roommates, the kind of roommates they gave me never got along. I live in my own apartment right now, and basically that's what counts, and I'm doing pretty good. Go to work for one hour, come home on Mondays. I used to work for Colonial, and I worked for a pet doctor. Then I worked at Pizza Pit for a year and a half. That was a fun job, except I had to wear a uniform, and I didn't like that. And then I went to work for the craft market till I had a drink. Right now, I am just working one hour a week at the Arts and Craftsman. What about when you come and paint? When do you do that? I, I come on a Saturday, and then mostly during the week I could paint. And how many hours a day do you spend painting here? I'd say hour to hour to a day. I think it's because it's up Madison and it's it's very local, you know what I mean? I chose to paint Madison in hot air balloons and uh, I did a lot of barns and a lot of interesting things. So I just found 
my knack is paintbrush and a troop of paint, and a canvas is the way I like going. I don't limit my art. I don't limit it. I do whatever people ask me to do. It's now 6.18 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. The nurses at UW Health have been attempting to reform a union since 2014, when the board of directors for the hospital system let their contract expire. But nurses met with CEO of UW Health, Alan Kaplan, earlier today to give their pitch and to show how many nurses have voiced support for a union. WORT producer Nate Wegehout spoke with UW Health nurse Courtney Yunkel about the meeting and about what happens next for the nurses. The nurses at UW Health have been trying to unionize since the contract expired in 2014 after the passage of Act 10. The UW Health Board of Directors claims that due to Act 10, they are unable to recognize any sort of union from staff. But last year, a legal memo from the State Legislative Council said that Act 10 merely took away the hospital's obligation to recognize a union and that voluntary recognition was still possible. Still, the board has stuck to their guns. Earlier today, nurses at UW Health met with the CEO of UW Health, Dr. Alan Kaplan, to discuss the nurses' desire for a union. I'm on the line with Courtney Yonkel, a nurse at the Children's Hospital at UW Health. Courtney, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So just to begin, can you tell me what happened this morning? So this morning, um, a group of eight nurses um, had a meeting with the CEO of UW Health, um, Alan Kaplan, um, to present our union cards. And we do have a strong majority of nurses who support having a union at UW Health. Um, And we asked um, Dr. Kaplan to recognize our union. And his comment was that he had nothing further to say um, that he hasn't already said. And um, the meeting was very brief. So what has Dr. Kaplan said in the past? Has he been... I know the board has sort of pushed back against it, but has Dr. Kaplan said anything in particular about the union? Yeah, he has sent um, system-wide emails um, about how the board cannot legally recognize the union um, and that they've consulted their own lawyers on the matter who've told them that they are not able to recognize the union under Act 10. So the legal memo that came out late last year sort of laid out that, yes, it is legal to form a union and for them to recognize a union there. It just sort of takes out the obligation to recognize the union. Can you sort of explain to me what the nurses are looking for and why they want to form a union? Sure. Yeah, you're right. There was a legislative memo that came out that said, while the hospital doesn't have to recognize your union, they can voluntarily recognize our union. And so we are asking the board to recognize our union because the majority of us nurses do want one. Um, We want to be able to have our voices be heard and we want to be able to be at the table when these big decisions regarding our jobs and patient safety are talked about. Um, And we just think it's important to be able to be at the table. 
So just really quickly, tell me what's been happening over at the hospital. I just kind of want to start off with first just on the ground with the nurses. I know from the outside, we can sort of see that COVID cases are on the rise, specifically COVID hospitalizations. But what does it look like from inside the hospital? Yeah, short staffing has been really, really hard on a lot of us. Um, Short staffing has been really hard, yes, because of COVID, but it was an issue long before COVID as well. Um, Not only because, particularly now, COVID, we have a large census of really, really sick patients, um, but due to what we feel is like the mistreatment, especially during the pandemic from the hospital, um, a lot of nurses have been leaving UW Hospital and the nursing profession in general. And so there's a lot less nurses at the hospital to take care of a lot more patients right now. So I want to talk about more stuff that's affecting your job, things like uh, health insurance and financial stress, things like that. Yeah. Um, so when we had a union, um, we were guaranteed all the shifts that we were hired for. And then after we lost the union, um, the hospital is pretty quick to implement a lean staffing model, which, meaned, which means that they could, if the census wasn't high at the hospital, call us off without pay. Um, and if we wanted pay, we had to use our vacation time. And a lot of nurses weren't getting their full paychecks and not able to make ends meet. Um, and those nurses had to leave the hospital. It wasn't a sustainable situation for them. And then now that we're busy again, all of those nurses are gone. And um, we're just really, really short staffed. And we've, I mean, the hospital has said that they would put maxes on what um, the nurses can be called off for. And then when it became unprofitable, they took that away. And it just has created this really difficult um, trust situation between the nurses and the hospital. And I think we've just realized that the only way that um, we can trust each other again as if we are equals and we have a seat at the table to talk about these things and um, negotiate a really fair contract through a union. So this lean staffing policy, is this sort of the norm at a lot of hospitals or is this specific to UW Hospital? I would say that the hospital implemented a a more extreme version of what I've seen happen in other hospitals. Um, It is true that other hospitals have um, had mandatory call-offs Um, But those call-offs historically had a cap, so you could get called off for a couple of shifts a year. And when they implemented the lean staffing model years ago, um, they made it an unlimited amount of time. And there were some nurses who were using up practically all of their vacation awarded to them throughout the year to be sitting at home on call to the hospital instead of being able to work. So moving back to this morning. Can you tell me what it was like? How many nurses were there at the meeting with Dr. Kaplan? Sure. Um, The meeting was around eight of us and half of the nurses were able to speak and um, talk about the majority that we have and requested that Kaplan and the board recognizes our union. Um, And then we had a lot of support um, on the outside of the conference room as well. A lot of nurses were really interested to hear how the meeting went. So um, there were probably around 50 or 60 nurses outside of the conference room as well. And how many nurses have signed on for the union there? Um, I believe the numbers are close to 1,600 as of today. Okay, so uh, quite a bit then, to say the very least. Yeah, it's absolutely a majority. So in this morning's press release that was given out, it was shown that UW Health saw hundreds of millions of dollars in profit in 
2021. So clearly money is not the issue that the board has with the union. Why is the board saying that they don't want to recognize a union? I think um, not having a union right now benefits them greatly because they can make and change policies based on what's going to be most profitable to them. Um, And the issue with that is when you're thinking about profit, you're not thinking about um, your patient safety. You're not thinking about safe staffing ratios. You're not thinking about how to retain nurses who have a lot of experience. Um, And so I understand that businesses have to think about profits, but it's coming at the cost of patient safety and safe staffing. So now I want to move to earlier this month when uh, the nurses had a meeting with Governor Tony Evers. What was uh, what happened at the meeting? What did the governor say to you? Uh, so again, a lot of nurses were able to tell um, Tony Evers about what's been going on at UW and um, um, what we've been going through during the pandemic. And he was very supportive. Um, he is very interested in helping us get a union at UW um, and agrees that Um, We need a seat at the table and an equal voice in order to be heard. Do you happen to know what happened in order to get the meeting with the governor? I have to imagine that that had to be a kind of a drastic step for the nurses to meet with the governor to ask for the union. Yeah, you know, I don't think it would come to that if the board would simply recognize our union, which we know they voluntarily can do that. Um, And we've tried multiple ways to try to get them to understand why we need this union, and they continue to not listen. And so it really forced our hand to have to go to the governor and seek his help. So now I want to move over to the future. Uh, What happens now, now that Dr. Kaplan has said again that he does not believe that he is able to legally recognize a union? Do you have any plans for your next step? What happens next? Yeah, so if the board will not recognize our union, which it's becoming clear that they won't, um, our plan is to officially hold a union election coming up in the next weeks to months um, to formally vote for a union and hopefully get the board to see how many nurses are wanting this union for our workplace. Well, Courtney, do you have just any final thoughts that you'd like to share with us about any of this? Um, Yeah, I just think, um, thank you for having me. It's a really great opportunity to just talk to people out there um, in Madison and help them to understand what we've been going through. And we really just want to be able to safely care for our patients. And having Madison and the public behind us um, would be really helpful and beneficial in earning earning our union back. I've been speaking with Courtney Yonkel, a nurse at the Children's Hospital at UW Health, about the nurse's attempt to unionize at the hospital. Courtney, thank you so much for coming in and talking with me today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me. And you're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Please stay with us. we got lots more stories coming up. Alcohol deaths across the state are on the rise. We'll have a dive into the world of NFTs with new domains and a peek into the artistic side of bodybuilding on Radio Chipstone. But first, we'll take a quick break, check in on some world headlines, and we'll be right back. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with Stacy Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. Wisconsin's longstanding culture around drinking has given the state a national reputation. 
But a new report is showing that that reputation comes with consequences. WORT producer Nate Wigahout has more. A new report by the Wisconsin Policy Forum, an independent and nonpartisan group that researches policy issues in Wisconsin, shows that alcohol deaths across the state are sharply rising. In 2020, 1,077 Wisconsinites died from direct alcohol-linked reasons. This is an increase from 2019, which saw 865 alcohol deaths in the state, an increase of 24.5%. This is slightly below the national increase, which saw a 25.7% increase in alcohol deaths from 2019 to 2020, but still marks the largest gap from one year to the next in the state since 1999. But this is not a new trend simply due to the pandemic. According to data from the CDC, alcohol-induced deaths in Wisconsin have nearly tripled over the last two decades. To dive more into this report, I'm on the line with Ari Brown and Mark Sommerhauser from the Wisconsin Policy Forum. How are you guys doing today? Good. Doing well. Yeah, thank you for having us. Now, alcohol-induced deaths, what does that term mean specifically? Alcohol-induced deaths would include anything any cause that is directly caused by alcohol. So this would mainly include things like uh, liver disease, mental and behavioral disorders due to alcohol. Those are kind of the big two in terms of overall number and also a number of other diseases that are directly caused by the excessive consumption of alcohol, usually over a long period of time. Importantly, what it does not include are items like car crashes due to consumption of alcohol, um, any sort of violence due to consumption of alcohol, and generally items that alcohol is a factor, but not the direct cause of death. Thanks for sort of explaining what that means. I think that's an important distinction between the two things there. So just sort of going through the report so we can definitely see an increase in alcohol deaths here in Wisconsin. And of course, Wisconsin also has a longstanding drinking culture here as well. From what you have seen from your research, have you seen any sort of specific link between the two? Or is this something that sort of is a little bit larger than that and goes across the whole nation? Yeah, so that's a good question. I'll take a crack at it. Maybe Ari can offer his thoughts as well. I can tell you that the trend is definitely a national trend in terms of increasing alcohol-induced deaths both in 2020, but also over a longer period of time, going back a decade or more. And, uh, you know, the annual increase that we saw in Wisconsin uh, in 2020 was right in line, actually slightly less on a percentage basis than the national increase. So we have seen a national trend, but, you know, at the same time, the rate of alcohol-induced deaths here in Wisconsin is higher than nationally. And also, if you look over the long term, over a decade or more, the increase that we have seen in these types of deaths here in Wisconsin has been a steeper increase here in Wisconsin than nationally. So, you know, there's sort of a national trend that Wisconsin is a part of, uh, but there are also some areas in which Wisconsin is, is really outpacing what is happening at a national level. Yeah, and, and I can just kind of add on to that. So you mentioned Wisconsin's drinking culture. We have three different studies in here that kind of back that up from a data perspective. So one is from the UW Population Health Institute. They found in 2019 that uh, rates of binge drinking for all gender and age groups in Wisconsin were higher than national averages. A, a second study from the CDC in 2015 showed that Wisconsin has the second highest prevalence of binge drinking of any state. And then we, we also looked at a study that showed uh, in every year from 1980 to 2009 when the study ended, uh, Wisconsin was in the top 10 states for uh, per capita alcohol consumption. So as Mark mentioned, the trends that we're seeing in Wisconsin 
largely mirror those of national trends. So Wisconsin is obviously above the national average. But at the same time, you do have this kind of background feature of the state that we really just have quite high rates of binge drinking that are not really seen very many places uh, elsewhere throughout the country. So one thing that really stood out to me in this report is the big spike in alcohol deaths from people of color. Can you guys tell me a little bit about what you found there? Yeah. So we looked at uh, the CDC has, you know, you can you can search for how different causes are affecting different uh, racial and ethnic groups. And we looked at at those data. Um, What we found for the most part was that alcohol deaths for um, most racial and ethnic groups in Wisconsin largely mirrored the trends that are happening for the same groups uh, nationwide. One of the things, though, that we did notice uh, was that the rate of alcohol-induced deaths among black Wisconsinites um, has really diverged uh, in the wrong direction from the national average. Uh, Around 2012 or so, alcohol-induced deaths among black Wisconsinites really started increasing at a very swift rate, and that was not seen nationwide. Whereas for white Wisconsinites, much like uh, for all white Americans, the rate has kind of been steadily picking up over time before it spiked in 2020. So that was something that was really alarming that we found. Uh, I think it's also worth mentioning that throughout the data, the rate of deaths among American Indians and Alaska Natives has been very high, pretty far above most other you know, racial and ethnic groups. And that was something that we noticed in the data as well. So I know you guys at the Wisconsin Policy Forum really rely on the pure numbers and research for these things. But do you have any sort of idea why alcohol deaths have been on the rise? That's a, obviously the, the, the big question here, right? And I, I don't think we do have any kind of a definitive answer to that question. It's a really important one. And you know, part of it is, I guess, just that we, we research policy issues and to try to answer that question in a really meaningful way would require people with a, a broader range of expertise than what we have, you know, in areas such as healthcare, substance abuse and addiction, you know, people that have expertise in some of those areas. And we, you know, already mentioned a few things that were kind of already in place in 2019 going into the pandemic here in Wisconsin in terms of higher rates of binge drinking and consumption of alcohol. Uh, we know we've done some other research that uh, here about five months ago that showed that people were, were purchasing more alcohol once the pandemic started. So, uh, you know, there is sort of separate additional evidence to suggest that people began consuming more alcohol when the pandemic started. Obviously, that could be part of the mix here. Um, it's not, you know, you don't need any kind of expertise to understand that people have been under a lot of stress since March of 2020. And and stress, uh, you know, clearly is something that can be linked to substance use and, in some cases, substance abuse. Um, we, and as well as things like isolation, socialized isolation that people have been experiencing um, since the start of the pandemic. So those are a few kind of thoughts. Um, Ari, am I missing anything there? Or um... no, I, I think you you hit kind of the big one. Um, one of the things, just in general, in this report that we looked at was. Because um, we were really interested in this question as well, you know, why uh, over time have these types of deaths increased, not only in Wisconsin, but, but nationwide? I think Mark got a lot at the, the kind of questions around 2020 specifically. Um, but over time, you know, some of the, the causes that, uh, you know, policy researchers nationwide have, have put forward 
is just kind of a growing availability and accessibility of alcohol. You know, we, we kind of talked with some experts on this subject who, who noted that a lot of the, the kind of alcohol accessibility policy in Wisconsin happens at the local level. You talk about things like, you know, liquor licenses, things like that. And there's kind of this thought that over time, there's just been a growing availability of alcohol. We, we write a little bit in the report about, you know, at the at the beginning of the pandemic, there was the, this move by state legislature and, and Governor Evers to allow for uh, to-go cocktails from, uh, you know, bars and restaurants. Obviously, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, there's this big concern that, and a very legitimate one about keeping small businesses going and, and making sure that people can support their, their local small businesses and that, and that we still have functioning economy um, while COVID's going on. Unfortunately, it's hard to tie these two things together, but there's obviously the potential for, uh, with the expanded availability for that to have some negative side effects like, you know, increased rates of harm from the overconsumption of alcohol. So that's one of the things that was kind of mentioned. Again, it's, it's hard to say, you know, direct, to draw any direct sort of causal link, but that is one thing that researchers kind of point to, uh, as well as specifically in Wisconsin, Mark mentioned, we do have relatively low taxes on alcohol, which is another kind of facet that that uh, policy researchers have, have pointed to before. I've been talking with Ari Brown and Mark Summerhauser from the Wisconsin Policy Forum on their newest report showing alcohol deaths in Wisconsin are on the rise. Uh, both of you, thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk with me today. Thank you for having us so much. In March of 2021, the art auction house Christie's sold a piece by an artist named Beeple for over $69 million. But the staggering amount was not to purchase a physical piece of art, but a digital file of 5,000 image collage. It's the most expensive piece of artwork sold using an emerging technology you've probably never heard of, but may have trouble understanding, NFTs. And this archival edition of New Domains Feature contributor Paul Herman figures out exactly what is an NFT and why people across the internet are passionately debating for and against them. Welcome to New Domains, a series about digital culture in and around Madison. My name is Paul Herman. Today, I'll be sharing another story behind our virtual landscape. NFTs. If you're mildly interested in the internet at all these days, it seems impossible to avoid stories about it. Companies, artists, and individuals large and small seem to keep getting involved. Disney has sold golden statues of their characters as digital collectibles. Apparel giant Nike bought a shoe company, but all their sneakers are virtual. Twitter is becoming home to a community of people who own avatars of custom-made monkey characters. Even here in Madison, last May, a local justice organization, Free the 350 Bail Fund, hosted an NFT auction to raise money to bail out black mothers incarcerated in the Dane County Jail. And now this technology is being hotly debated. Some see it as the perfect future of the internet, where others see it representing all things gone wrong. So with the heavy importance of this, what in the world is an NFT? Even I, someone wrapped in internet culture, have trouble understanding it, but I'll do my best to explain. NFT stands for non-fungible token. Fungible is an economic term. It means to be interchangeable, that you can trade copies one for one. You can trade a commodity like a barrel of oil for another barrel of oil. All money is fungible. You can trade one US dollar for another US dollar. Something non-fungible is unique 
and can't be replaced with something else. An exclusive trading card printed only once is non-fungible. Traditional art is non-fungible. You can make forgeries and print copies, but there's only one Mona Lisa. NFTs are an attempt to make digital objects, a photo, video, or even the first tweet ever made, a non-fungible object. It uses the blockchain technology behind cryptocurrencies, something I won't even have time fully to explain in this episode, to create the token. A link to the URL of the digital asset is tied to the blockchain and can be claimed and purchased for exclusive ownership. If it still seems confusing to you, that's because it is. NFTs rely on emerging technologies that are still being perfected, and they are an attempt to radically change how we view information on the internet. You see, in the digital world, once something is shared, there doesn't really exist an original copy. If I upload a picture of myself to Facebook or any website, anyone else with access can download that picture. Those copies are identical. The code that makes it up is the same on each computer. They can be traded one for one. They're fungible. It's part of the power of the internet to rapidly spread data to many people at once. NFTs say that there can be an original, that if you store a code for a web destination of an image using blockchain technology, you can claim to own the original copy. Making an NFT doesn't stop the file or image from being shared, but it means socially a copy is not the quote original because it is not held by the owner. So why have NFTs? Depending on who you ask online, the debate is vigorous. Some people fervently believe this is the future for ownership on the internet and can give power to people. But others fervently believe the opposite, that this is a harmful technology that needs to be stopped or carefully reviewed. To start, for the optimists, NFTs are a way to give ownership to artists and creative individuals. Because things are copyable by nature online, they don't have much value. In the current internet, many artists rely on their work becoming viral and then capitalizing on the attention. Making a piece of digital art in NFT means it can be auctioned like traditional art. This can provide a significant increase in income for struggling artists. Mike Winkleman, the digital artist known as Beeple, used to sell his works for $100. Now he's behind the most expensive NFT sold at $69 million. Stories of rags to riches for even teenage artists keep happening in this flurrying market. But other artists think applying scarcity to digital art ruins the experience of art that can be freely shared online. And worse yet for some artists, the NFT market has attracted scammers who take artists' work without their permission, create an NFT, and sell it for profit without the artist making a dime. Even artists from huge video game studios like Insomniac are reporting this theft. Another big argument against NFTs is the massive energy it takes to make them. Cryptocurrencies rely on blockchain technology, which has computers solve increasingly complex math problems to create a digital coin. It's called proof of work. Weird, right? And by their nature, as cryptos grow more popular, they require more complex problems, and thus more computers spending energy. It's grown enormous. According to an analysis from Cambridge University, the cryptocurrency Bitcoin uses more electricity each year than the entire country of Argentina. NFTs mainly rely on a different cryptocurrency called Ethereum, which is less energy consuming than Bitcoin. But instead of Argentina, Ethereum currently matches the energy of Libya. For many, the additional cost to our energy system and how that impacts the environment is simply too much. But optimists believe NFTs can become a fully green-backed energy. 
already almost 40% of proof-of-work cryptocurrency mining is powered by renewable energy. There are alternatives that many are touting can be used. And with NFTs specifically, there are movements to either make Ethereum as a whole greener or move NFTs onto greener technologies. There are dozens more talking points for and against NFTs. What I believe is most important in all this is an ongoing debate about the future of the internet at large. NFTs and crypto are growing at the same time that internet giants are under a ton of pressure. Facebook, Google, and other Silicon Valley companies are under pressure for their role in promoting misinformation and taking over more and more websites on the internet. Many optimists see NFTs as a way to break out from the media giants and provide power to creators and individuals. Critics see NFTs emerging as just another tool for powerful corporations and individuals. The most important thing I say with NFTs is to stay heavily informed before making your own best judgment. While I personally won't be buying any virtual sneakers soon, I'll be keeping my eye on how this fascinating discussion unfolds. Thank you for listening to New Domains. Reporting for WRT News, I'm Paul Hellman. It's 6.50 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. In this archival edition of Radio Chipstone, contributor Jennifer Fields reintroduces us to professional bodybuilder Victor Martinez, also known as the Dominican Dominator. The interview took place in 2012, and it ends with Martinez spending time in jail. But it's important to note that after his release, Martinez continued to compete as a professional bodybuilder, winning several pro competitions and placing in the top 10 and others. And in 2018, he created the Victor Martinez Legends Amateur Competition. On December 19, 2019, after a lengthy legal battle, Martinez won his U.S. citizenship. The conversations I have with artists are usually about how they use tools to change one thing into something else. Aaron Howard turned a railroad spike into a bottle opener. Erica Koivinen and Neil Brownsword both turned found objects into fine art. But what happens when the object and the tool are inseparable? I'm not trying to blow your minds. I'm trying to get at a conversation about what happens when we objectify ourselves. How far would an artist go to create perfection? Victor Martinez is a professional bodybuilder. His answer to the previous question, far beyond human possibilities. Before I started, I did not care about my body. I didn't care about feeding my body. I, I really had no connection to my body. It was about a year ago that I found myself stumbling down Madison State Street in an object study stupor. 
I had just discovered material culture studies, and everything I saw was subject to my new vision. Martinez was standing outside of a nutritional supplement store, handing out autographed photos. Well, it started first off um, when I was, a, of course, a teenager, when most of the realization of physiques and, and size kind of come to a realization that you're not as big. I actually still remember being, uh, being uh, slim, a little nimble, um, very agile. I mean, I could run for days. I was very flexible and uh, I carry my, my weight much easier. Martinez is so big, he has to turn sideways to get through the door. His legs are so massive, he can't put one foot in front of the other, causing him to shuffle instead of walk. His movements are mechanical and far from agile. He doesn't look real. And according to Martinez, that was the goal. I derive everything from when I used to draw as an artist, uh, from drawing uh, Marvel comics, from watching wrestling, from watching bodybuilding. And, and I visualized it first, and I, and I took it in first as an art. Martinez says he saw his body as a blank canvas, as a thing to be shaped and molded into his notion of perfection. In order to get at the truth of their works, an artist needs to have a connection with their materials. To reach his goals, Martinez struggled with connecting with his own body. This thing of, of actually becoming bigger, becoming stronger, becoming a bodybuilder brought me closer to my body because it gave me that, that sense of, of now I have to know my body. I have to understand it. I have to pay more attention to it. So now I knew I had to feed it. I knew I had to see where my body is at the moment. I knew where I had it to bring it to later on in order to, get, to achieve my goals. So definitely uh, getting closer to my body was the only way I knew was the only way to reach my goal. Martinez hit the amateur circuit in 1995 and won his first title in 1997. He went pro in 2001, won a slew of competitions earning the name Dominican Dominator. During my conversation with Martinez, his manager stood within earshot. When I asked Martinez how he got so big, the manager turned to face me. The look in his eyes said, don't ask. Turns out, I didn't have to. A web search led to a number of articles tying Martinez to steroids since 2003. Martinez is massive, and I can't help but plot my escape route should he suddenly lose it and hulk out? That's actually the first uh, visualization that, that people do get is, is this big person just kind of looking big and strong and dangerous. Now, if I do notice somebody that's noticing how big I am and how intimidating I am, all I can say is, hi, how are you? I have never just started for no reason, no intentions at all, just started judging anybody based on the physique they already have, you know. As an athlete, you do that from one athlete to the other. As an everyday person walking the street looking at another person, it never really comes to mind at all. It's been almost a year since I spoke to Martinez. Since then, he spent months in a New Jersey detention center for an immigration violation, further complicated by a criminal record in connection with steroids. He was released in the spring and allowed to remain in the United States. Online Muscle Magazine articles claim that Martinez was unable to maintain his physique while detained. For WORT, I'm Jennifer Fields.
And that's a wrap for WORT's live local news at 6. Your reporter tonight was Heron Splinter. Special thanks to feature contributor Jennifer Fields and Paul Herman. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Nate Wiggy helped produce this newscast. And Ms. Shali Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Remember to download the official WORT app for your phone to hear your favorite shows on demand. You can also get WORT's local news as a podcast wherever you subscribe. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks for listening and good night.